Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trials stemming from the tragic death of Ahmaud Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. On our last episode, we examined Franklin Hoag's opening statement on behalf of Greg McMichael. William Bryan's attorney, Kevin Goff, opted to defer his opening until after the prosecution completed the presentation of its case. Our original plan for this episode was to begin to bring you the witness testimony from the prosecution's case. However, a development in the case has led us to change plans. With the prosecution resting on Tuesday, November 18, and with Kevin Goff delivering his opening this morning, November 19, the defense began to present its evidence, and the first witness that they called was Travis McMichael. We will bring you our examination of that testimony over the next few episodes. If any of the other defendants testify, we will bring you their testimony as well, and then we will loop back and present to you the state's case and Kevin Goff's opening. Our presentation of defendant Travis McMichael's testimony is coming up right after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. After a hearing where Travis McMichael told Judge Timothy Walmsley that he understood his right not to testify, but was choosing to do so, the jury was escorted back into the courtroom and Jason Sheffield rose to question his client. Travis, are you aware that you do not have to testify? I am. How are you aware of that? Uh, you have explained it to me several times, and the judge this morning has also explained it to me. Are you aware that you are presumed innocent and you have the right to remain silent? Leading and irrelevant. Yeah. We, we don't need to go through all this. This was done before. So let's get to this testimony. Okay. Travis. Yes, sir. Do you want to testify? I do. Why? I want to give my side of the story. I want to explain what happened and to uh, to be able to say what happened from, from the way I see it. Okay. Well, let's do that. Let's talk about Satilla Shores first. Okay. When did you move into Satilla Shores? I moved into Satilla Shores September of 2018. Okay. Had you visited Satilla Shores before then? Yes, my parents moved and moved there in 2013, and I'd be there frequently. Okay. Visiting them. When you moved into Satilla Shores, where did you move into? Uh, my parents' house. Okay. What types of things would y'all do? Uh, who I'm sorry, who was living in the house with you when you moved in in 2018? Okay, my parents, my mother and father were there at the time, um, <clears throat> and then I moved in, and I had my son every other week. And so he would be with us then. And then my sister moved in back in uh, a few months afterwards. Okay. How old was your son at that time? He was just turned two. Okay. What 
type of people live in the Satilla Shores neighborhood? Satilla Shores is a is an older community. Uh, you have a lot of retirees, and then also there's starting you start to see young families in there as well. So any given evening, you see older couples around or um, young families with, with children out on the roads and the yards and stuff like that. All right, and and seeing old people around and young children out in the yards, are there any other types of activities that you would typically see going on in the Satella Shores neighborhood while you were living there? Yes, it's uh, it's one of the typical small-town neighborhoods. You, you'd have people riding around with golf carts, people walking dogs, uh, people with their kids with little power wheels, trucks, and um, children on bicycles, and, and uh, it's just a real quiet community. That's, you know, that's Did you city. ever interact with people or, or see people when you were out in the neighborhood? Yes, if I was out in the front yard or checking the mail or doing whatever, everybody's friendly. So you stop, you know, talk to hey, how you doing? Nothing, didn't hang out with very many people, but yeah, we talked frequently. Anybody that come by, people stop and talk to each other. Jason Sheffield has taken Travis McMichael through many attributes of the Satilla Shores neighborhood. What Sheffield does not ask about is the racial composition of the neighborhood. Prosecutor Dunikowski has indicated that she would not bring racial animus into this case unless the defense opens the door, allowing her to do so by introducing evidence of Travis's character. The prosecution may argue that Travis's description of Satilla Shores as an idyllic community has now opened the door to a discussion of racial animus in the neighborhood. Was there any crime happening in the Satilla Shores neighborhood that you were aware of going as far back as when you first moved in, in September of 2018? It was rare at first, but it started building up. Um, when did it start to build up? I'd say about October, November, about about time I moved into Satilla Shores, about September, October of 18 is when it started kind of starting to roll. And what types of things were you aware of that were happening at that time? What I was hearing was... There was car break-ins uh, in the yards, um, suspicious persons. I know there's, tr- you know, I've heard a trailer stolen, just little stuff like that, but it was continuous. It was every couple months you hear something else. Something. Did you ever have anybody going through your things in the neighborhood or have any crime happening to you back in that September 18, October, November, and moving into 19? I did. Uh, right at the first, I started having my truck was actually broken into, or it was open. You see stuff was, was scattered around. Nothing was taken, didn't think anything of it. And then by February of, uh, what year? of 2019, okay. I bought a little car to drive back and forth to work, and it was broken into numerous times. I got to the point where I would just leave the thing unlocked because they broke the door handle and they broke the glove box. So I just kind of left it as a, just let them have at it, leave everything else alone. But it was, it was continuous. Hmm. Did you discuss this with your mother and father? I did. Did you discuss it with your sister after she moved in? Yes. Did, did they share things with you about what they were hearing happening in the neighborhood about crime? They did. All right. Did you discuss this generally with other people that you would see in the neighborhood? Yes, it was, uh, it was going on so much in the neighborhood that that was usually the topic. If you'd stop by, you know, hey, have you been, have you heard of, you know, down the road they had a car broken in. Have your car been broken in lately? You know, stuff like that. It was it, it was just kind of common occurrence at that point. 
So yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a discussion. Were there other sources other than your own experience or talking to your mom and dad where you learned about crime going on in the neighborhood? Uh, yes. What was that? Uh, Facebook. And, Tell me about that. Okay, so uh, Facebook, we, there was a page. I don't know who set it up, but there's a Satilla uh, Shores Neighborhood Watch or Facebook page. And uh, I was either added on there or either way I was on there. And scrolling through Facebook, um, if you're not looking for it, if something is updated on there, it would pop up. And say so in the evening, I'm looking and, you know, a neighbor would pop up. Hey, we just had uh, police came through. Somebody, you know, the neighbor had a uh, had somebody in their yard or, you know, something was broken into or something like that. So I'd see that. Uh, scroll through, and then my mother was also on there, so she would <laughs> advise me, hey, did you see this? And, you know, I would look at it or something like that. Travis McMichael's discussion of Facebook groups would, again, seem to open the door to the prosecution raising the issue of racial animus within those neighborhood groups. At the original probable cause hearing in this case, Georgia Bureau of Investigation agent Richard Dial indicated that Travis McMichael had expressed such animus on social media. The prosecution may well ask, on cross-examination, whether McMichael participated in such groups and whether there was ever racial animus or race-based suspicion expressed by McMichael or any other participants within this group. So as, as we're moving from late 18 into early 19, which I think the time period that you're talking about, how did you feel about what you were learning about crime in the neighborhood? It was beginning to become a problem, uh, and it was, it was definitely a problem because it was, it was starting to be a common occurrence, like I said. Okay. Did you take any action at that time, other than what you've described by you and your parents talking about locking things up and keeping stuff out of your car that could be stolen? Was that about it? That was about it, yes. Did you speak to, ultimately, any other of your neighbors in the neighborhood about crime in the neighborhood as we move forward from February 2019 into the summer? Did you I, begin to speak to people about crime in the neighborhood? Yes, it was, like I said, it wasn't, we weren't searching it, but he stopped by, you know, yes, I, I saw this or heard this or read that. Sheffield then takes Travis McMichael through some of the neighbors that he spoke with about crime in the neighborhood and then moves on to neighborhood response to these developments. Did you notice that your neighbors began to take certain actions around their homes based on the crime that was happening in the neighborhood? Yes, about that time around May, June, July, around there. Um, you started noticing and hearing people starting to put cameras in their in their houses. Um, it was, I can't remember all the people, but you go down the road, you, know, you drive down from Still Drive to my house, you see cameras on every, you know, just starting to come up on every house. And also, People were, weren't coming out as much in the evening times either. What do you mean? Um, towards dusk, you know, you used to see kids running around, and older older people right, walking dogs, stuff like that, and uh, it started backing off. You know, people talking about people in the neighborhood that are these break-ins and these people that are uh, coming around these houses, they're, they were just concerned about it, so they wouldn't come out as much anymore. Did you begin to notice whether police cars were driving through the neighborhood or doing any patrols? Yes. And where would you notice that? See them. You see them or you see it on Facebook. You know, somebody put, hey, uh, saw, you know, Clint County police came through, had the lights on, you know, the side lights or 
the outside and see them, or, you know, it was, uh, it was pretty obvious. And, and did these types of activities give you any concern or, or, or cause you to worry in any ways? It was, it was concerning that nothing was done, that there was, you know, that they have to continue to be in the neighborhood. I was glad to see them in the neighborhood, but it's concerning that, that you have to have that constant presence. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Sheffield next moves into the topic of Travis McMichael's service in the Coast Guard. This is an area that we examined in some length in both our examination of GBI agent Richard Dial's testimony at the probable cause hearing and in Sheffield's co-counsel Bob Rubin's opening statement. Have you ever had any law enforcement training? I have. Okay. Where did you receive that training? Uh, In the United States Coast Guard. And did you attend any kind of school to be trained for the Coast Guard for law enforcement purposes? Uh, yes. What's the name of the school that you attended? Uh, it was the basic boarding officer course, and then there was following extra classes with it, but it was at the Maritime Law Enforcement Training Center. Where was that located? Charleston, South Carolina. Okay. Did you serve in the Coast Guard? I did. What was your, what was your, your dates of active duty? March of 2007 to June July of 2016. In general, did you have duties other than law enforcement type duties in the Coast Guard? Yes. Can you name the category of the type of duty that you had? Yeah, so my rating was my my average job in the Coast Guard. I was a machinery technician. I was a mechanic. It was my nine to five, I guess you would call it. Sheffield glides over the fact that McMichael indicates that his main job in the Coast Guard was as a mechanic. He focuses on McMichael's law enforcement training. So let me ask you, what are the types of law enforcement things that you did in the Coast Guard? Uh, We did search and rescue. We'd go in there and then if something would arise to that, you know, if... uh, Rescue turned into a BUI. You know, we did investigations on that, but it's... It may be obvious, but what's a BUI? Uh, boating under the influence. Um, calls water cops. You know, the guys on the, on the uh, on boats, you know, mainly. But it counter drug. Um, Who was that? Counter drugs. Counter drugs, okay. Yes, uh, migration or immigration. Um, assisted Customs Border Protection, Drug Enforcement Administration, stuff like that. Uh, I'm sorry, assisted who? Uh Drug Enforcement Administration, Customs and Border Protection. Okay. Did you ever write <clears throat> violations or citations for people? I did. Did you mm-hmm. ever work with local law enforcement when you did your law enforcement investigations on the water? Yes, several times. So what types of law enforcement agencies would you work with? So we would work with local and state law enforcement, um, the Sheriff's Department or, or yeah, the Sheriff's Department were the two stations I was at. And then also state agencies like uh, Florida Wildlife Commission or Georgia Department of Natural Resources or Mississippi Department of Natural Resources. 
What is a high interest vessel? <clears throat> high interest vessel is a. It would be like a cruise ship, or um, a vessel with some kind of like a historical importance. Something that if somebody would want to do harm would choose that vessel than anything other. Make more more uh, more news, I guess. And then it's also called an HVA, which is a high value asset, which would also be uh, dangerous cargo. Did your activities as a Coast Guard officer involve you working with high-interest vessels? Yes. In what way? Uh, in security, making sure that we, we would set up zones to make sure that nobody that's wishing to do harm to it or that would impede its movement would get in the way. And we would uh, actually enforce laws. You know, we had uh, arrest powers to make sure that, that we can uh, accomplish that mission. Do you remember the name of the, the law enforcement course that you took um, at the Law Enforcement Academy? Uh, yeah, it was basic boarding officer course. Okay, you know. and what essentially did that training authorize you to do? Uh, it allowed us to make, it's called C's 2. All right, what's, what is, how, do you, how do you break that down? C's 2. All right, <clears throat> it's an acronym. Uh, it's uh, S E A S. I I. I I. Okay. There's a uh, search. Yes. Allows to big examinations. Okay. Arrest. Yes. Seize. Okay. Inspect. Okay. And inquire. Okay. Seize two. Yes. All right. And can you tell us a little bit about the components of your training? What is the law, essentially, that authorizes you to be a Coast Guard law enforcement search officer? So it gave us the arrest powers. Okay. And everything involved with that was uh, 14 U.S.C. 89 Alpha. Okay. Which gave Coast Guard officers, petty officers, which I was. All right. Warrant officers and reserve of the reserve of the same on active duty the right to seize to you know, search, examine, arrest. See, All right. Uh, so this here is the code section that gave you the ability to do these yeah, things in all vessels in U.S. territorial waters. And, okay. Yes. All right. Um, did this course have a law component, like a legal component? It did. Did the legal component, what did the legal component address? Uh, the heavy one was Fourth Amendment. All right. Uh, and search and seizure, is that what sort of falls under Fourth Amendment? It did. Arrest? Yep. Okay. And in terms of, did you also deal with the Fifth Amendment? We did. Like due process, things of that nature? Yes. Okay. Did you learn terms like probable cause or reasonable suspicion? You did. Okay. And what was your training about probable cause? Sheffield begins to write this definition down for the benefit of the jurors. It takes about 45 seconds for him to do this. We have edited it down a bit, but have left Sheffield's final comment. Well, probable cause definition that we that we received was a uh, level of suspicion by a reasonable and prudent person, given the overall circumstances. 
to believe a crime has been committed. There's no spell check on these things, so I'm not sure. Sheffield writes on a large easel pad and jokes there's no spell check on this. The theatricality of this is clearly for the benefit of the jurors. Sheffield is calling the jurors' attention to Travis McMichael's definition of probable cause. At the trial's end, the judge will instruct them on a definition of the same term, but as it relates to the defense that McMichael was trying to execute a citizen's arrest on Ahmaud Arbery. Sheffield appears to want to impress Travis McMichael's definition of probable cause on the jurors' memories. The defense attorney then moves on to exploring Travis McMichael's understanding of another concept that will apply to this trial, use of force. Sheffield again theatrically writes this down for the benefit of the jury. Okay, let me go back to a, a, a component perhaps of training. Did you have a component of your training called use of force? We did, yes. All right. Can you tell us what that is? Yes, yeah, so use of force is, is the level of force needed to, get, to compel compliance in the safest manner. And then we had acronyms and everything for that, too. We had a, um, a uh, use of force continuum. There's six levels. Okay. And it goes from level one, which is officer presence. All right. I'll just go through all of them. Okay, what does that mean, officer presence? <clears throat> officer presence was what we call showing the flag. Okay. Uh, being out there having the flag, the blue lights, just like a cop pulling up on the, you know, you have blue lights, the uniform, uh, his presence, his demeanor, the badge. Does it include talking? Yes. Okay, or making an arrest? Yes, it can. Okay. All right, what's the next level? Level two is verbal commands. Okay, what does that mean? It sounds pretty obvious, but... What does it, that mean? It's, uh, it was task direction and consequence. Yes, task direction and consequence. Okay, so give us just a little bit of a working example. So when you're in active duty or you know, you're in uh, law enforcement function, I would say, Mr. Sheffield, you move to the side for me. And if it didn't work to that, so you move to the side for me or I will have to move. Okay. Usually you didn't have to go with that if you can. Is there a physical component to this, or is it just you're talking? No, no, it's, that's it. That's just, there's, that's all it is, verbal command. With the purpose of obtaining what? Compliance. Okay. So that you can do what? So I can do my job safely and effectively. Okay. All right. Um, is it volume dependent, your voice? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, voice affliction and tone is definitely uh, a key into it. Uh, being on a boat. A shrimp boat or something like that, and you know, there's loud engines and everything. If I have to talk to you, if I'm trying to talk to you like this, you can't hear me, you can get aggravated. But if I speak louder and I'm, my voice inflection is, hey, move over there, you might take it as I'm upset, and then this can escalate into something that we don't want. But if I take everything into consideration, go, excuse me, can you move over there for me? Yeah. You know, it's, 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 you use it every day. All right. You um, use the word escalate. Is it your goal to escalate situations? No, absolutely not. Why? Because once you escalate, you don't know where it's going to go from there. You want to keep everybody calm and cool and be able to do whatever task is at hand safely and effectively. After defining officer presence and verbal commands, Travis McMichael responds to his attorney about control techniques, aggressive response techniques, intermediate force before getting to... And then level six? No, uh, is deadly force. Defense Attorney Sheffield then guides his client to tell the jury of his experience with use of force. 
Did you and your team ever do training as it related to these types of use of force continuums and search and seizure and arrest? We did. Okay. When would you do those? <clears throat> we had, it was required, minimally it was required quarterly, which was four times a year. Yeah, four times a year. Okay. But I was also a trainer trainer. I was authorized to to teach um, other Coast Guardsmen how to assist in, in uh, into boardings. So we would have new uh, Coast Guards be coming to these boats and stations, so we were constantly training. It was probably minimum once a week, sometimes two, three times a week. Sometimes we'd dedicate a whole week to training. All right. And, and uh, it went from from physical levels one through five, uh, simulate six, obviously. Would you practice these various levels? Yes. Okay. How would you practice some of these levels that start to get into physicality or, or higher verbal acuity? In training? Yeah. If, say, me and you were in a scenario that we built a scenario, it depended on, if you were the boarding officer, how you interacted with me would be how I would interact back with you. Another acronym, acronym we used was called LEAPS. Okay. What's LEAPS? The acronym is? Oh, L-E-A-P-S. L-E-A-P-S. Yes, sir. Listen. <laughs> What's E? So emp empathize. Okay. Ask questions. Okay. Paraphrase. All right. Yes. Summarize. Okay. And you were saying you would use leaps in your training? Yes. You teach leaps? Yes. All right. And that would go to, you go into a situation and jump on a boat or a scenario like this that you get somebody that's a straw or very upset. Instead of going in, hey, calm down. I'm here to do this. There's other ways to do it. So, hey, what's going on? What's wrong? What, what happened? Well, then say you explain to me what's happened. I, my dog just died. You go to emphasize, yeah, I've had that happen too. It sucks. I'm sorry that this has happened. It then goes into... <laughs> Is it, you're saying empathize. Mm -hmm. You said emphasize. Did I admit you? Your empathy, is that what you're talking about? Having empathy with somebody? Yes. I wrote down empathize, but you just said emphasize. Maybe it was a slip. Okay, but you're saying you would sh try to share in one's experience? Yes. Okay. Yes. And then ask questions, you know, ask what's going on with it. You know, it pretty much de-arming somebody, you know, and, and calming them down, calming them down. Because once again, the whole goal is to de-escalate, keep anything from arriving. All right. So is it that this can lead to de-escalation? Yes, absolutely. Okay. After asking his client about his use of the lower levels of force on the spectrum, Jason Sheffield then asks him, Did you ever have to use intermediate? I did not. Or deadly force? No. Did you have any training on hand-to-hand -hand combat? Yes. Did you have any training on how to retain your weapon? Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? But, uh, for weapons retention is what we're talking about. We were trained on the personal defense weapon, which is our pistol. We carried an M16, and we also carried an 870 riot shotgun, which is a small 14-inch barrel uh, shotgun. Okay. And did you, what was the type of training that you had about <clears throat> weapon retention? Um, what was it What was it that you were training one another to do? Yes, it's how to keep, how to keep, your, keep your weapon from going into the hands of somebody that's trying to take it from you. Is this something that you would practice? I was, yes, absolutely. What is the concern about not retaining your weapon? That it would, one, that you would not be able to 
protect yourself in a deadly force situation and also that somebody taking a weapon from you would use it on you or others. Did you ever have any special training with a shotgun? Yes. Did it include how to retain it? Yes. Okay. Did it include how to use it to de-escalate situation? Yes, with, with any weapon, yeah. It was, it was the same as the other weapons. And explain that. Explain how do you use a weapon to de-escalate a situation? So in a situation like a, we would consider it in their level one, um, which was officer's presence, in certain situations, like if you come on a boat and you have unaccounted for personnel or they call known safety hazards, uh, which would to have your weapon drawn <coughs> and sometimes a third eye, which was right here, or it was easily, it was readily accessible where you didn't have to take it out of the holster. Um, in their situation, that was still level one because it's also present. You see somebody with that weapon, that's also present. And then also, if you had to draw your weapon on someone other than that, was if there was a reasonable possibility that the use of daily force may be, may be authorized, which was another uh, key component on that. All right, show me about that. A reasonable possibility yes. that deadly force what? may be authorized. Okay. Again, Sheffield is theatrically writing this down for the benefit of the jury. We will come back to this point, but it's worth noting that this is yet another concept that will be closely related to concepts within the judge's instructions to the jury in this case. And what does that mean? you. It means <clears throat> from the trainer we had that yeah. if you go into a situation that you are not aware of that you don't know if someone's armed or if they have made threats or made threatening gestures and you have a weapon that's obviously holstered or you don't have it either and they come towards you or make these threatening gestures which was closing the deadly force triangle or the attack triangle then you are authorized to, to draw that weapon. All right. Which would what is the attack triangle? It's a uh, subject's actions, weapon, and opportunity. Okay. Action, weapon, yes, and opportunity. And how does that work? So, say a scenario where you have threatened me. So, you're threatening me. You put that under subject's actions. Weapon, what we're taught is everybody has a weapon. Hands, fists, or a weapon. So, in an attack situation, attack triangle would be you're threatening me. You are close enough to attack, and which is the opportunity. And then, obviously, you make the threat or you make the gesture that you're going to attack. Throw the fist back. That is at that point an attack. The attack triangle is closed, and I can use level, which would be level four or level five in that situation. Okay. And there's also a deadly force triangle. Which goes into which is uh, subjects actions. Yes. Weapon and opportunity, and then under weapons, maximum effective range, and if it's readily accessible. You're talking about range. What do you mean by that? If you if you have a baseball bat and you're 50 yards away from me, the weapon. Is no longer it doesn't close triangle because the maximum effective range is no longer there. You, you're not going to harm me with that bat at 50 yards. If you are 50 yards away from me with a, if I could see a gun on you, and you're 
making the threats, the gestures, then deadly force is trying to close. Okay. When we I asked you earlier if you have ever been trained to use a firearm to de-escalate a situation. Is that something that you have trained to do? To, to use it to de-escalate, but not to actually shoot somebody with it? Well, yeah, that was it. Under level one, they're doing the... Um, Having it, uh, having it um, out of holster, or having the draw down if if need be, if if you felt that deadly force may be authorized. When you say draw down, what do you mean? To actually have it pointed at you, um, or at the subject, or anybody that is that is causing the threat, or that, that may be the threat at that time. And when you say draw down and point it at somebody, <clears throat> does that mean that you are in fact going to pull the trigger? <clears throat> The possibility is there, but obviously you're trying to de-escalate the situation. So, um, in your experience, in pointing a gun at somebody, de-escalate the situation. Yes. How so? If you pull a gun on someone, this time they realize that this is if this threat, or if you don't know what's going on in the situation, and you have you pull a weapon on someone. From what I've learned in my training, that usually that cause people to back off or to realize what's happening, compel compliance. In case you missed that, Travis McMichael said, compel compliance. At this point, it seems worth mentioning that in a pretrial hearing, Judge Walmsley denied the defense motion to call a use of force expert as a witness on behalf of Travis McMichael. And yet, without apparent objection by the prosecution, Sheffield seems to have succeeded in turning Travis McMichael into his own use of force expert, allowing him to define and for Sheffield to write down for the benefit of the jury many of the key terms on which the jury's decision will be made. Outside of your Coast Guard life and your Coast Guard work, did you own and carry firearms? Yes. Did you ever have to use those firearms before for protection? Yes, I have. Can you tell me about that? Uh, one Relevancy. This is the prosecution's first objection since Travis McMichael began to testify about his Coast Guard training in use of force. It's relevant because he is carrying a gun in this case. He is carrying a gun, I believe, for this testimony will establish why. And the fact that he's had experiences with having to do this before informs him informs the decisions that he makes as a person under these circumstances. So the fact that he's been in situations where he's had to use his gun to protect himself before uh, informs his decisions on also February 23rd. Relevance. It's what he did under these circumstances. You're talking about something something he was doing in the Coast Guard. No, I'm talking about him as a private citizen where he's been out with a firearm, carrying a firearm before, or he's had to use it to protect himself. Ladies and gentlemen, if you could take a step into the jury room, please. All right, We'll hear the arguments on the prosecution objection and continue our examination of Travis McMichael's testimony next time on Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. This episode was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. <laughs>